Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the last Ruler podcast of 2018. I'm just back from the Track World Cup in London, where we saw proof, just in case anyone needed it, that motherhood has not slowed Laura Kenny by even the slightest amount, nor diminished her absolute desire to win everything. And you suspect the same will be true of Lizzie Danian, who less than three months after giving birth is back training with her eyes very firmly focused on next year's World Championships in her native Yorkshire. Rilleur's Hannah Troop caught up with her at the Trek Segafredo training camp in Sicily, Lizzie's first time away without her daughter. Yeah, really tough. I, I, kind of, I think because my hormones are still readjusting as well, I'm probably more sensitive than I ever have been before so uh, it's hard but I know she's she's fine so it's me that's <laughs> that's suffering. So how old is she now? Uh, she's 11 weeks. Wow okay so not very old at all. Not, yeah, no, yeah. So you're here for, for only for a few days aren't you and then you, you Yeah fly back. so I'm really lucky. Trek have been really understanding. They've been great about it. They've kind of just made sure you know I didn't even need to be here but I, you know it was good for me to be here. I knew that it was important for me to meet the team and the staff and everything, so uh, just a couple of days. It's almost a bit like the first day at school, isn't it, where everyone's kind of looking at each other and finding out who each other yeah, is and it stuff. Is. So. Yeah, it's, but it, that's why it's so important to be here for those sort of things, because uh, particularly the girls, like I've raced against them, but I've not ever been teammates with a lot of them, so, you know, kind of weird to just drop in in the middle of the next year, not having met any of them. So when did you know this year that you were going to be making the move over? We started talking in kind of the end of May, June, uh, and then things moved really quickly as soon as Trek had decided that they were ha- having a team. I think because of the infrastructure of the men's side of the side of the team, they kind of just were like, right, if we're doing it, let's do it, and they put the team together really quickly, so... Uh, from starting to talk to them to signing, it was about six weeks. You were obviously on maternity leave at the time, so um, and for them to come straight to you, that must have been like a real kind of, uh, just a really nice thing for them to have done as well, actually. It was a huge thing. Like, it, I can't underestimate that because it meant that they respected me as an athlete at the top of my game rather than uh, as kind of a risk or as somebody who would have to work their way back up again. They They took me on as a world champion and, a, and somebody who's achieved rather than negotiating with me as a pregnant woman who couldn't do anything for them. They, it was just a, 
a huge amount of respect that I felt that Trek gave me. So it was really motivating to sign for them. I was like, yeah, this is where I want to be. And how has training been going? Has that been a lot harder or not as hard as what you thought it might be? Actually, it's been way easier than I expected it to be. Yeah, I've improved um, far more than I thought I ever would. (laughs) Uh, So all is 11 weeks old and... And back into good training. I can't still do any longer than three hours because I'm breastfeeding, so I have to, that kind of limits what I'm able to do. Uh, but I think that's probably a good thing as well because it means I'm not going to rush into too much too soon. You said that you want to be back by June time next year, don't you? So do you think that you can see it might be earlier than that? I might be tempted, yeah. I mean, it depends obviously on the team and how well they're doing. It's not like you just walk back into a team like this and say, hey, I'm here, I'm back, you know bump somebody off the roster so um, I'll, it'll be an evolving conversation with Ina and Georgia about how I feel and I'd like I mean as soon as I'm ready I, I want to race so have you been following much of the racing whilst you've been away from it at all or have you just kind of locked yourself away from it and thought I need to deal with what's going on with me at the moment um, I've kept like one eye on it I would say I've not followed it completely no um, just because I think it was a really good opportunity to step away from it and have some space and come back motivated so kept one eye on it but yeah you were saying that you kind of felt like you needed to have that refresh and and kind of sort of re-motivate yourself and do you feel like that's kind of come back that hunger for it again yeah definitely um I'd got stale (laughs) yeah I mean I was still going through the motions I was still very conscientious working hard and still getting results but if you're not enjoying it it's it's really hard really really hard and now I go out on the bike and I'm not even thinking about each pedal stroke like it just three hours is gone in like that whereas three hours used to feel like nine uh, so I know definitely I feel totally different yeah. that's the thing isn't it I guess when you stop enjoying doing the training because that's such a massive part of what you do then it must be so hard to go out there every day on a bike and put yourself through so much pain yeah you kind of need the suffering to be subconscious like and it's a difficult thing to describe but you have to get into this kind of place where you can suffer subconsciously and I was in a place where every suffering every pedal stroke of suffering was conscious and I was fighting it all the time Um, and now it's kind of just like I'm really enjoying suffering again without sort of thinking about it weirdly in the last week or so um your other half has said that he's uh, he's going to be retiring um how has that been sort of a discussion that you've both had about how you then sort of deal with parenthood and what's the best way forward yeah i mean we did have in plan plans in place in case uh, phil carried on uh, with hindsight now, having a newborn baby, we realised probably it would have been possible, but it would have been very, very difficult, and it does mean that um, it gives me the best chance to make my career successful, you know, like, and not compromise childcare or training. And, um, yeah, we're, we're, it's difficult for Phil, obviously, to retire from top-level sport, but um, it's just a, a next chapter in life, and I'm, I'm very lucky that he's there to support me at home you know he's got all her at home these three days and it makes a huge difference for me knowing that she's at home with a dad rather than somebody else does that then make you feel like there's a lot more pressure on you coming back in knowing that he's been the one that's kind of (laughs) given up this his side of of doing uh pro cycling in a way yeah but i like that pressure it's a really good thing for me to have pressure like i need it to perform and it's 
it means that it's more special in a way if I am successful because it's a real team effort and um, yeah I've just it, I really enjoy it actually that kind of family approach to it yeah you got to enjoy it and I think having a year away from professional sport has made me realize that sometimes you can get too kind of caught up in the bubble and not enjoy it and you know I have to think in five years time am I going to look back at 2019 and think I was totally anxious and worried all the time about being under pressure or am I going to look back at it and think wow how lucky was I to enjoy a year where I had a home world championships and a newborn baby and you know a new family life like you got to just choose to enjoy it rather than get you know stressed by it. Lizzie Danian Incidentally, if you still haven't found something suitable as a present for the cyclist in your life, or more likely, if you're listening to this, you want something to drop hints about, the latest edition of Rouleur 18.8 is out now, featuring a unique interview with Eddie Merckx by Sir Bradley Wiggins, also a fascinating photo essay on British national champions, the Dagnoni family's beautiful collection of Dernies and Stair bikes, and Ned Bolting meets Tiffany Cromwell. Even better, why not consider a gift subscription? available on the Ruler website. Well, while the road peloton enjoy their off-season, the cross riders are in full-on racing mode. A string of national championships coming up over the next few weeks, plus the World Cup races in Namur, Zolder and Hugerheide, and the World Championships in Denmark in February. 26 years ago, our next two guests rode the Cross World Championships in Leeds. Roger Hammond, then still at school, won the junior title. Mike Kluger, who later went on to set up Focus Bikes, won the senior. It was for me like a very important, um, very important race for me. It was everything or nothing because I was uh, a little bit out of the, of the professional cyclocross race scene uh, after my two, two amateur title, but I wanted to become also two times professional world champion. So Leeds was one of that, and the second one supposed to be Corva in 93, a year later. Unfortunately, I took the wrong bike parts on the bike, and uh, 800 meters before the finish, I lost all my, my um, like, 30 seconds. I was ahead. I was already, like, it was pretty sure, sure I became world champion. And uh, Dominique Anu and Wim de Fosse had passed me. Dominique Anu I could catch, but not, um, uh, yeah, I could pass, but um, not Dominique Anu, and so he became world champion. I was second. So um, that was pretty hard. So that gave me the lessons. Always test your products very hard under extreme situations that they're not failing in like important races. And of course, in the uh, junior race, uh, that event was uh, Roger Hammond. And uh, Roger, what do you remember of uh, of '92? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was obviously a huge, huge day for me. Um, you know, being world champion is is a massive event anyway. You know, life changing event. But um, you know, for me, winning winning a world title in your home country was was just incredible. I mean, the support, the the, the noise. All I all I remember is just how how it's kind of went silent because the noise was so loud that you, my my ears really couldn't cope with it. So um, it became quite quiet. But and then, and the, my other resounding memory actually is walking around after the event in the afternoon, where you know I kept my medal on and my jersey on, and then I just watching Mike Kluger ride round, brown as a berry, absolutely brown in the middle of January in in, in the UK, with white, predominantly white German kit on, 
and he was so far ahead, he just killed everybody that he was celebrating for the whole last lap. And I was just remembering, yeah, cool. That's, that's what I want to be. <laughs> and then both of you obviously had successful uh, careers on the road. Both of you went on to uh, ride on the road. But, Mike, I get the impression that um, cyclocross and later mountain biking was really what was in your heart. I loved the off-road because uh, I was taking always like the benefit of my technical skills. Uh, I know if you can read the surface well, you have the right setup, tires, profile, later on the mountain bikes, the suspension, what really helped you a lot. Because of that, you could actually get a huge advantage. Um, and um, I think I wasn't like always when I was winning, like powerful, the best rider, but I used uh, the option from like, my technique. And that also came because of car racing, because I was also doing car racing at that time. And there it's like also very important that you do exact the right line, otherwise you have to brake more and then you have to accelerate. So and and car engine has like only like a certain horsepower. So if you do a mistake in your turns, you can't just like on a bicycle stand up and pedal really hard. And anyways, why to pedal really hard if you do a nice turn? So you have to ride like very economically and you save heart rate, speed. And that gives you, of course, a benefit to use that what you saved in the race for the last lap. And did you uh, enjoy road racing or were you or sort of always wanting really to be off-road? I mean, it sounds really funny. I'm, I'm not a person for winter times. Um, unfortunately, cyclocross was a winter discipline, but the good thing was it was like only for one hour the race. But uh, on the road, um, I also got offers from, from uh, Jan Raas at the time from different professional teams and I was very... Um, flattered at this time, um, but I was saying, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do this. Um, because I remember, like, especially the races in the springtime, 180 kilometer, drizzling, two degrees. I was crying in the morning. I was crying because I know this will be painful for the next five hours. And I was ready to pay 500 uh, German mark at the time not doing this race because fingers are numb. And, you know, at that time, I mean, still today, you have this warming, you know, like lotion, what you put on. But that stuff actually really works after the race when you're back in the room. And then you have that warm bathtub, you know, where you want to get in. Your hands have still the, the, the handlebar, you know, um, profile. And then you can't go, go into the hot bath because the cream is reacting on the hot water and then you cry again because you can't you know warm up yourself and i was saying no no i can't make my living on this pain so you went back off road actually i went on on mountain bikes because when that started and at that time i was actually in california in in 98 and they called me and i said we would like to invite you for a mountain bike race i was saying at that time i have no idea what is a mountain bike but you know what i will go into a shop figure out and we talk tomorrow so this bike looks like like bigger tires very stable i thought oh that's nice so i flew to berlin i did the world cup race it was the first one i came in on second without a lot of training but of course cyclocross was in that way like uh, an advantage for me and i was asking them so where are these world cup races and they said yeah australia south africa hawaii i said exactly that's the place they want to go Summer, nice places, and uh, that was the reason why I always started my mountain bike career. 
Roger, how much of a sort of influence did the cyclocross and that off-road uh, background have on you during your road career? Absolutely the backbone of my road career um, and, and it's why I continued cross throughout my, throughout my career. Um, mostly because, uh, you know, Mike touched on it earlier, it's all about, it's a, it's a way of riding your bike. And, and if you, you know, for me in Tour of Flanders, Paris-Roubaix, I wasn't the strongest guy. I wasn't, I didn't have the horsepower of um, Fabian Cancellara, so I had to find the advantage elsewhere. And that was by being more efficient by, you know, for me, everybody who talks about Paris-Roubaix being 50, 58 kilometers of cobbles. For me, it was around about four and a half kilometers because most of the time I was in the, in the mud on the side of the road uh, or on the smooth uh, grass on the side of the cobbles rather than, rather than riding them. So there I saved immense amounts of energy and, and that was all through confidence and, and a way of life riding off-road. You know, I didn't remember the, the year where Cancellara won and I went across, went across on uh, Mons on Pavel to, to Tom Boonen and Fletcher. I remember taking the corner on the cobbles there so fast that I... I'd slid with both wheels from one side of the road to the other and only kind of, you know, used the edge of the grass just to stay upright. But it didn't, even, it didn't phase me. I mean, I was, still, I was still pressing the pedals because that's what I did every weekend in the winter. So, you know, it, it, and it, it focused my career. You know, it's, you know, where would I, does analysing the side of Alpe d'Huez in the Tour de France give me any advantage? No. So I just didn't go there. I just focused my, my whole career on riding the races where I could find an advantage by, by using the skills from cyclocross. I was the, the guy that was always leading the tyre pressures at Roubaix. I mean, I was, everybody was five, six impact punches. No, don't need impact punches. Just avoid the cobble. Run the tyres at the right pressure. Just don't hit the cobble. And, and so nowadays, um, everybody's running at, you know, 3.84 bar which is what I was doing years ago as, as, and that was my advantage You do make it sound very easy I'm sure it wasn't No, I mean it's, it's not I mean, it, it, you know, the, the one thing I always said about Roubaix was that Roubaix at the end of the day felt like a five minute race because the whole time you're focused so much on every single cobble that you, you, you're riding on and, that, and that's not many I don't think many people can do that because it's, it's, a, it's a thought it's a way of riding your bike and it's the things we developed as a cross rider. Like Mike said in, uh, in the interviews there, it's not about just going and learning the circuit. You can't do it like a motor race where you go and learn the circuit, right, okay, that tree I take close, that one, you know, don't cut it because there's a... Because every lap it changes, every single lap. So, you know, every, even it changes with the guy in front of you. You know, you can spot a line and then the guy in front of you churns it or... The ditch, you know, the, the groove has moved because he swerves. Everything is changed. So you have to learn to process these things so quickly. And that enabled me to process those cobbles. It was, it was absolutely... Roubaix physically was tiring, but mentally was shattering. Um, and you just, you know, mentally, I just... I used to go and sit in a caravan up in the northeast of England for two weeks just to recover mentally from it. Looking at the current uh, cyclocross scene, how's it looking? What, uh, what are your thoughts of the races you've seen so far? Yeah, I mean, for me, cyclocross, it, it's in this period of transition where it's, you know, it, it always used to be a, a kind of a supporting, a supporting sport, you know, supporting to the road, supporting to the mountain bikers, and, and it kind of was this niche niche sport 
and and it's almost a little bit like track has become with with the British track squad. You know, they they've become so dominant, and and in cyclocross, Belgium has become so dominant that it it it's kind of all the other people that used it as a as a. It was one of the reasons I ended up not travelling to World Cups in the end, is because it became so expensive, so time consuming to do, that if you didn't invest that you weren't competitive anymore. And, and I think that's, it, it's great for the sport because it's becoming a, a sport in its own, own right, but it is developing from a supporting role to a, an, its own sport. And I think, you know, that's great for the younger generation of cyclocross riders. And that's why we've got people growing up wanting to be professional cyclocross riders now, not, oh, actually, I want to be a road rider. I'll start off with a bit of cross to, to give me a, some help, which is what we used to have to do. So I think the future is looking bright for the sport. We just need to, you know, it's, it's, it's in that development phase and growing rapidly. Mike, particularly as a, uh, someone, you started Focus Bikes, which uh, have always had an interest in cyclocross, always made some very good uh, cyclocross bikes. Um, you're still connected with the company. Um, how do you see the, uh, the current state of cross? I think today it's actually getting even more difficult to survive, um, as Roger just said. Uh, Belgium is like very dominant and then a little bit Holland and then it's like a huge gap so whoever wants to be in front um, has to have like huge support but support you only get if you performance so what comes first so um, the problem at the moment is um, you I think it actually have to come like a little bit from the from the UCI to to get a support you know to like get the country a little bit on the same level, gives an officer like the, the option to, to grow again, to perform better. And um, then, of course, it will be in the media again, because when I, for example, see Germany, um, after I stopped cycling, it was not on air anymore. There was no TV coverage anymore. And of course, how can I convince the sponsor, you know what, that is really a cool sport, put like some money and you will get a nice, it's a nice investment for getting marketing back. No, unfortunately, it's gone. And so that is, of course, difficult. And without money, um, you can't, you know, like buy at least, you need like four or five bikes, you need spare wheels, you need a lot of people, you need every two years, you know, wash machine, because uh, washing these dirty clothes, it just like screws up your wash machine. So it's, it's quite a bit you have to think about. It does seem also that um, the sponsors are particularly interested in selling to the Belgian market, but actually making it more international is, is, is harder at the moment. It is, and I think, uh, and it's exactly for those reasons Mike just said, is that, you know, realistically it is so big. So it, it, uh, a sport survives because of the financial input and and belgium have got this market now of television time there's a huge amount of exposure um you know actually to be honest with you i feel it's a, a better sport to sell than road cycling you have a, an audience that you can charge entry um they pass lots um you know it's exciting it's changing there's crashes there's you know there's everything to sell um, it's just a matter of, you know, trying to sell that and, and really somebody taking hold of it. And, and Belgium have done it and they've, you know, we can't knock them for it. They've done it absolutely fantastically well where the riders there, you know, look at, look at Walt van Aert and van der Poel. You know, trying to tempt them away from it is quite hard because they're actually so well paid to do what they do uh, because the support is there. That, um, you know, and, and, and that at the moment is the detriment is we just need to get that TV time in the UK. It's coming. 
And that's the beauty of it, is we're now getting those TV, TV coverage, GCN, now we're going to cover all of the events this winter. So, you know, it, for me, it, that's the most exciting side of the cross, is that it, it is coming, and that's why I say it's developing. And we've got some very good British riders, good young British riders, the Tullets and uh, Tom Pickcock in particular. That's it, exactly, and, and that's what you need. Is like Mike said, when he stopped in Germany, the television time stopped. Well, it's, it, you, can't, you can't shy away from that. If you do have a star in that sport... There's more interest. Tennis with Henman and Murray, uh, it's the same. You know, if you have a star, and, and the good thing about um, you know these young young lads is they have character as well. They're coming. Tom especially is is a you know he's a, he's a very interesting person to to follow and watch. So you know he's, he's with it. He's bringing something that's cool to the sport. You know, rather than this niche niche event in that you know you train in the woods on your own in the dark. You know, you've got somebody that's actually quite you know, um, well, people will want to emulate. So it's time to catch up with the ruler desire editor, Stuart Clapp. And for once, uh, Stuart is not in Essex. You're, You're in Mallorca, Stuart. With Team Sky, yeah, and Castelli, yeah. Um, it's not. It's, it's like, like a bit of winter sun, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's quite quite nice to get away in it just before Christmas. Um, yeah, we got invited over here to um, have a look. Go, well, I'll go do a little bit of riding with the team, and then have a look at Castelli stuff for next season that you're going to start seeing coming through. They've got like a billion new things that are, uh, you know, that they've been in development with Team Sky for a couple of seasons, unless you've, you know, you're really keen, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have noticed them. But um, yeah, they've, yeah, we've, yeah, it's nice. It's quite nice over here to do a bit of cycling, isn't it? 16 degrees here. I was out in shorts today. Yeah, thanks for that. Sorry about that. And for everyone listening at home. What's the atmosphere like after, you know, last week's announcement? There must be uh, a few people nervous about the uh, the next year or so. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it, when, when, a, when, you get notice of this because obviously team sky are very much built around some pretty big team leaders. So you're, you, you know, you're going to have riders on this team next year. I've, I don't know whether it's going to be a difficult thing to sort of kind of manage from a, from a, a team perspective. Well, it's going to be an interesting tour de France, isn't it? Yeah. Because the tour de France is normally where people start looking for different contracts yeah. and touching up other riders for contracts. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's going to make yeah. it even you, more interesting. You, usually Paris is, is where the business goes down. Um, yeah, we, all right, we've finished that. Done three weeks. Right, let's, let's talk who's going to be riding where next year. Again, when you've got, you know, you've got two tour winners there, Potentially, other other riders that could go on and win the tour that are riding as you know domestiques for for G and Chris Froome. So it's I don't know, very interesting. But that's kind of not not my. You know what? Actually, but while we're here with Castelli, we've uh, Gabriel Rashes is obviously you know he worked for Team Sky, and we've we've just been going over a lot of the development of you know what a, a jersey that has become kind of the Hoover, like a brand name, isn't it? It's like you got your jersey, you got your shorts, you've got your gilet. And, and your Gabba, and regardless of who made it, you know, it's quite an interesting bit of kit. Because a lot of people don't know that the Castelli Gabba, which, as you say, has revolutionised uh, a lot of people's lives, including mine and probably yours as yeah. well, over the past couple of yeah. years, is actually named after Gabriel Rash, the Team Sky DS, the uh, former um, uh, teammate of Tor Hoshoff. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, Gabriel Rash, you know what? I've, I just had a really, really interesting... You know you're saying about how it's defined something. It, it, 
they, the guy from Castelli just told me the figures on when that jersey was, was, was first released. And in the first, the first season, the first time they put it in there, it sold like 260 units or something in a season. And then last year, I think it did like 6,000 or something. Oh, God knows. It was a lot. But that, the first one was just like, hang on, have we made the right decision? <laughs> but the thing is, when, you, when you've worn it, I remember I got given the first one, which was in 2011 by Castelli. It was a black prototype of the Gabba. And I remember looking at it going, what, why would I wear this? Oh, surely I'd wear a jacket. But obviously you can't race in a rain jacket. You can't ride an echelon when it's windy. You can't race in it. You can ride your bike in it, but you can't race in it. And then when that came along, that was like landscape gone. If Gabriel Rush is there, do you want to go and get him? Yeah, I'll get him. Yeah. I'll, I'll grab him now. I'll grab him now. Right. Right, I'll pass you over. Right. See you later, Ian. Hello. Uh, Gabriel, welcome to the uh, Ruler podcast. Stuart and I were just discussing the jersey that's named after you. Can you tell us the story of, of how that came about? I was riding in um, Cervelo Testim, 2009, and... Uh, the whole, the whole idea of the team was that we were going to work closely to the sponsors uh, of the team, and uh, one of them was Castelli. And um, yeah, I, basically, I was uh, fed up with riding races with a big fluffy rain jacket, and I thought, couldn't it be something better? Can we make something better? And um, I sat down with Castelli in. Brixia Tour 2009 and I brought this um, old Credere Cole West Rain West I had with me just to try to explain what I wanted and um, so I explained I want to have an aero rain jacket uh, I want it to be waterproof, breathable I want it to stick to the body and I don't really need arms all the way down just a little bit arms over the shoulder would be good and then throwing back and forward some ideas and then and then I came back with a prototype uh, a bit later uh, yeah and when you saw that first prototype did you think oh well, actually this is going to be something uh, really really special yeah, yeah for sure and I think yeah you know we got it in the just in the classics um, 2010 just a black jacket and I think it was something totally new for everybody and um as a team, as a group in the classics, then to have this jacket was uh, was something special, and we knew we knew we had something special then uh, already. And is it true that riders on other teams were sort of coming to you and saying, "Oh, yeah, uh, Castelli don't sponsor my uh, team, don't give us the clothing, but we'd really like one of those." Yeah, a lot of a lot of riders came to me and asked, and I think I think uh, Castelli was. Uh, bit um, tired of me calling asking for new jackets all the time as well but um, yeah I remember especially when I was uh, when I was riding in Sky um, 2014 I think it was uh, all the guys um, especially in the classic team they asked me if they could have a gaba jacket from me or if I could help them get one and then um, Finally, uh, Steve from Castelli came a couple of days before Milan San Remo with um, 10 jackets, just black with no branding, nothing. And I gave uh, one to each. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, it was horrible weather. And a lot of the guys used the jacket and 
the team was a bit uh, mad at me afterwards because I thought it was my fault. <laughs> well, because they weren't riding in the uh, in the sponsors' clothes. No, exactly. Have you been surprised though in the past couple of years quite how popular it's become? I think it it, it was certainly a start of something uh, bigger as well with how the um, rain jackets in general and uh, a lot of uh, cycling kit in general uh, should be and uh, how it could move forward neither me or castelli thought it was going to be a big big hit because um, until everybody else start to cope it and uh, may make the same well listen on behalf of uh, everyone who's who's worn one and who's sort of suddenly discovered a a much more comfortable way of riding in the <laughs> cold and rain thank you very much <laughs> um one more question. Obviously, we had the announcement uh, last week about uh, the end of uh, Sky sponsorship for the team. Um, ha- how's the atmosphere in the team at the training camp and ha- how's it looking for next season, do you think? Uh, for next season, it looks good. I think, uh, um, you know, me, he is more hungry than ever to win his fifth tour. Uh, G, uh, he wants to win his second tour and... Uh, yeah, of course, that's going to be the challenge in the tour. Um, who are we going to ride for? But I think uh, this year we showed that it is man- manageable. And also Egan Bernal, he wants, uh, he's a young guy and uh, he also wants a lot. And uh, I think uh, everybody's motivated. Everybody's uh, really, everybody wants to have a good year. And then, of course, when we got the news, it wasn't uh, not the news we were hoping for. But um, I think everybody's pretty confident that Dave and um, the group um, working for our future is um, is going to find a solution. The rest of us, we we um, sports directors, coaches, and the rest of the performance staff, we really have to continue focusing on. Um, on our job, you know, to win bike races. And then we need to have the confidence that Dave and the guys, they can find a new partner for us. OK, Gabriel, well, good luck to you and the team for uh, for the uh, new season. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's it from this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll catch up in 2019. <laughs>